This episode is part of our series discussing the debate topics released for Debatable Open 2021. The motions can be found in the description along with timestamps for your convenience. Please enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of Debatable. Um, For this episode, we're joined by Miguel Ventura, who was the national champion of 2016 PIDC. Um, He's also part of UPDS. He was never my teammate. He was actually Kyle's teammate at one point. Was it once or like more than once? Uh, Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they broke in UADC as well. Um, Ventura specializes in economics motions, but for today, we brought him over for philosophy. So hi, Venti. Welcome to our show. Hi, hi. Thanks for having me. All right. So the first thing we have to ask about philosophy would be what makes it special as a theme. So everyone knows it comes up in debate tournaments. It's usually like in the semifinals or finals, um, sometimes even earlier, but everyone knows it comes up. So what do you think makes it unique as a theme, despite how prevalent it is? So the the other part of the question was, I know you would say all motions are philo, blah, blah, blah. And I'm, <laughs> I'm still going to say that. I'm still going to say all motions involve philosophy because all motions entail a questioning of the realities and natures of the topics involved. So, uh, for example, policy motions in general. Those are questions about what the ideal state of society is supposed to be and what the nature of your citizens are, you know, those who live in it. Uh, art motions, what do we consider beautiful and how do we reconcile that with the thing or person that produces the beauty? Uh, and international relations or geopolitics, uh, where does power and legitimacy of a state come from and how can that power be shared or contested, right? So that's never going to go away. Uh, that said... What is unique about an explicitly philosophical set of motions is that they uh, force you to question a lot of the assumptions you would use for other topics. So, for example, in um, economics motions, I'm sure you're used to comparing frames about the best way to organize a market. It's a question of whether you want greater freedoms to participants like individuals and companies or greater interventions from states and civic agencies. And there's a ton of assumptions baked into that. whether people are irrational versus rational, whether states are limited in their knowledge versus states being holistic, et cetera, et cetera. But the philosophy involved there goes back a step. Uh, How do we even organize a society or a market? How do we ascertain the nature of a human or a group of humans? And so philosophy motions in general deal more with these fundamental questions rather than take the answers to these questions for granted, you know, for all your debates and stuff. So I think a good example of this would be motions about space exploration and extraterrestrial life, or you know, literally translated life beyond our Earth. And I think what happens with a lot of novices, I've also been there, and personally, I'm still not a particular uh, fan of these motions, is that they can get in over their heads about the science fiction aspect or the war aspect, etc. Uh, like, oh no, the aliens are going to eat us, or oh yes, humans and aliens are all going to get along. But really, these space motions are just philosophical examinations of a very big set of questions. What does it mean to be human? Does this experience of humanity stem from our being sentient? Whatever sentient knowledge or life is, right? And how much can we generalize the human experience to be the experience of similar life forms that we may encounter in the future? So that's really just an illustration of what's unique about philosophy. You have to really dig into a lot of these fundamental questions about reality, nature, humanity, etc. And since the answers aren't given to you, unlike with most other motions and their assumptions, you really have to squeeze them out yourself. So given all that, how would you approach this as a novice or how would you recommend novices approach philosophy motions given that there's so much to explore? (laughs) unfortunately i can't say much other than one read a lot more things and two ask more questions i do think that philosophy motions require a ton of creativity to excel in so there's that popular notion right like you have to be some like uh, poggers real big brain dude to understand philosophy that's partly true but i think that creativity can be generated anyway by just reading a lot and learning about the problems we have as a species there's this saying that uh Everything is just a a footnote to Plato, the Greek philosopher. I won't delve into the differences between Western and Eastern philosophy in this. I think that in itself is a very dense topic worth its own exploration. 
what it what it does mean is that a lot of philosophical inquiries, if you care to generalize or perhaps overgeneralize them, is that they all boil down to very similar questions anyway. And if you care to read more about a lot of pressing issues in society, uh, inequality, scientific development, corruption, and how many others have tried addressing those problems, you'll find that to be true. There's always the same question of whether we can trust humans, whether we can trust systems, whether we can learn about certain things or if certain knowledge will always be unattainable. And those questions will always keep recurring. And if you take the time to read up a lot on how other people have tried to answer those questions, I think you'll find you'll start getting an edge in philosophy motions that others might not have. Think of it as how um, most motions eventually appear very similar to each other after a certain amount of experience. It doesn't mean the motions are becoming stale and boring or that your ad score is uncreative. Rather, it just means that you learn to identify a lot of the debates and frames that ad scores expect from the motions, no matter how they're dressed up. It's no different with philosophy motions. Um, there are a lot of fundamental questions and a lot of really nice questions to pick at your brain at that ad score likes to set. And if you have an idea of what those kinds of questions are and how people try to answer them, then you will find that you will do slightly better or much better with philosophy motions. So as we go on to the first notion, the first notion is about preferring a life where one is fully content but doesn't aspire for more over a life where one continually aspires for more without any certainty of contentment. Our first question is something like, obviously there are two contrasting concepts here. There's aspiration and contentment. How would you characterize both concepts in such a way that both teams will find it agreeable? Right. So this motion came from a national final set, uh, PIDC for the Filipinos. Uh, and unfortunately, it wasn't used because it was an Asians format. So who knows what Adscore thought was agreeable, right? Um, but at least for me, this is just a motion that asks, what is a life worth living? Or perhaps more specifically, Aristotle once said that the unexamined life is not worth living. Was he correct or not? in that statement. So I don't think you need to overdo it or overthink it too much. I think it's enough to start out with, say, contentment um, as just being satisfied with the overall balance and availability of the things you have in life. So off the top of my head, maybe you have a good house, a good partner, maybe some kids. You live in a nice enough neighborhood that's just right, even with the occasional flaw like the noisy neighbor. And there are certainly higher positions or different positions that you can aspire for in your current job or career. Um, but if you think you're doing what's best for your life already and there are a set of responsibilities and enjoyments that you already have, that's, I think, an unacceptable um, example or definition already. And of course, continuous aspiration could be that you know, you're always aware, perhaps acutely aware, that you can do more and get more out of life. That in itself, um, you aren't doing too bad with your lot in life, but you think that because of your experiences and background, maybe you are you come from a very privileged background, or maybe you are the first to come from a very poor family and you're the first one to make it in life. Maybe you feel some sort of obligation or impulse to really go further no matter what, even if you're not sure about the particular outcome. So I think for the debate sanity, I think we should be charitable with such interpretations. So, for example, I think it would be in bad faith um, for an opposition team to, art, to accuse Gov of saying that, like, oh, the fully content person is just a dullard. He can't become aware that some people have it better than them. They're stuck in a state of ignorance. It's an awful way to live. Uh, or maybe that they won't know that someone in their position is privileged enough to pursue them. I also think it's in bad faith to say, as a Gov team, that, oh, without certainty of contentment, you're literally on the brink of your sanity exploding. You're never going to be happy. You're always uh, one step away from your mind shattering because you know you will never be happy. I think we can assume and ought to assume that this debate is about the life of the ordinary human. We live that life out every day anyway. Um, we find moments of, of contentment and moments of aspiration all the time. We are happy with our experiences as they are, but we are also aware that others may have experiences we find better and want to have those experiences as well. And with, with all of that, I'm sure we've all asked the question, like in the quiet of our hearts, is my life enough? I think that's really just a debate. Um, as a side tangent thing, I think there is this weird trend, at least locally, that we become too fixated with the strict definitions and technicalities of certain terms. I've been there myself. It's something I used to, we used to do in our time that might be our faults as well. 
uh, we get too hung up with, oh, what's the standard of regret? What's the standard of oppose? What does X, Y, Z mean? When I think for philosophy motions, you might want to be a little bit more exploratory, even if it means letting loose of some technicality. So I hope that answers the question. So I agree with you that we have a tendency to be overly technical with how we address motions, which I think also is a problem with how we deal with motions that ask us to weigh two outcomes. So right. my question now is, like, how do you prevent motions like this from turning into a chicken and egg debate? Because I've encountered multiple times when there is a discussion like this that most teams would go like, or at least opposition would say, but aspiration can lead to contentment anyway, so we also get the benefits of government, yada, yada. So how would you deal with that? Right, right. Well, to, um, to some degree, that will always be unavoidable because real life is complex enough, blah, blah, blah. We can have both contentment and aspirations. Humans are just odd creatures like that. We're bound by our mortality and material bodies, that sort of stuff. Um, that said, of course, GOB might have it a bit easier to avoid the problems. And I think their primary burden anyway is just to show why humans ought to learn things like contentment and gratitude when they feel they've attained an acceptable state of life. I think it would be a bit ugly, obviously, if OP tries to burden push government to defend a set of people living in abject squalor or living each day anxious about being sunk into poverty and think, yeah, that's a life that's worth being content. Um, we're going to avoid examples of ascetics and religious people. That's definitely a human experience, but I'm not sure that's the vast majority of this debate anyway. Um, I think what's more important is that government just has to defend that you know there's there's nothing wrong about a humble life or the life that you currently have when it's clear to illustrate that you had to balance a set of responsibilities a set of opportunities and trade-offs to attain that and it is no big thing to say that um the set of responsibilities and the set of pleasures i have with this life are enough i think my biggest goal now is just to attain this i don't see any point in further struggling if it would only bring me more heartbreak i think that's a reasonable enough uh burden on government of course opposition has the burden of defending human agency and creativity despite all odds i'm um, right so this tag about say um continuous aspiration for contentment we can have both isn't an aspiration frankly speaking or alternatively I think it's the only aspiration afforded to side government when clearly opposition's burden and aspiration is always more. Like your responsibilities aren't enough, your pleasures aren't enough, the people around you are, are not enough, and they will never be enough. Um, that said, I think opposition does have the burden of defending human agency despite all the odds. Or put another way, and I think to make it easier for opposition teams, the question is whether happiness or contentment really is the ideal state of humanity. Why aren't pursuits to learn more, prove more until the day you die just as good, if not better? So on one hand, they can't cop out and say, oh, we'll aspire for contentment. Uh, we'll have both worlds. But on the other hand, I think they have the unique benefit of being able to argue that, yes, um, we defend a world where people understand that what they have is good, but they always know that they can do better and that they can share that better world with people. I'm not sure why government then is okay with not sharing that better world with the rest of society, even if, even if we don't know if we'll be content, even if we don't know if that better world is attainable. So I think that's, those are some ways to avoid the chicken and egg um, concerns that people might have. Well, on the other hand, like, I think Gov can also like try to exploit that kind of chicken and egg by saying that, look, just because you're going to be fully content doesn't mean that you never aspired for anything. So my question now is, even under Gov, how would one even decide, okay, I'm done aspiring for anything. I'm content now because like, I don't know if it's like the capitalist, capitalist slave in me, but I do get this feeling that even if I do achieve my goals, it doesn't feel the same as how I would imagine it to feel. Right, right. So like as, a, as earlier, like if you're not feeling too secure about the magnanimity of your off bench, you could always caveat that you're not defending people pretending as if living in soul-crushing poverty is any reason to be content. I think for general human experience, you can just trust that people might be able to understand that at some point, the occupations they have, the passions they have, and the responsibilities they have, they are burdened with have accumulated up to a certain point that they think is just the right mix. So they say that, okay, I, am I still have to take care of my parents. I now have a family I'm living with. I have a fairly cushy job. And you just trust it maybe, okay, I'm content enough with this. There's a better position maybe, 
um, I could maybe find a better uh, house to live in, but I'm perfectly fine with that is. I think regardless of if you use the capitalist frame, right? So I understand there will be capitalist concerns and oh, um, it's about consumerism, the drive to consumerism, the drive to have more, the drive to compete. Definitely all these things will flavor the discussion. Um, but I think what's fundamental anyway is is the, the, the debate on whether or not it's worth living such a life thinking that attaining that right mix of responsibilities and pleasures is all there should be. Like, is it worth living a life with the mindset thinking that, you know, once I achieve X, I should stop there. That's a good enough balance. You're contributing society anyway. Um, is that really a good mindset to have? Or is it a better mindset and a better life to live um, thinking that, you know, there's always good, more good to be done. There's always something better to be done for myself and for others. So, yeah, um, I would just, just to sum it, just to summarize it, just trust that gov teams should be able to characterize that it's not just happy feely stuff. There are responsibilities and burdens you had to pass through to achieve the life at that point in time. The question is whether it is okay for us to live a life thinking that that's all there's going to be up to that certain point without thinking there should be more. Yeah. All right. So how would you justify that? Like, how do you justify the trade-off of what could have been? How do you defend, like what you said, how do you defend a humble life without going into um, like repetitive levels of analysis? Like, well, this is better if you're humble because like, I don't know, it, it seems to invite a certain level of tautology where a humble life is good because you're content and content is good because it makes you humble or stuff like that without needing more. So how do you, you know, how would Bentham argue something like this? Okay. So I won't, I won't deal with Bentham because I haven't, I haven't refreshed on him. <laughs> um, I would say that, you know, counterfactuals by definition are not true. We can't lose out on something that was never existent or real, right? You can't lose out on this high paying job that was never that was never in your sights anyway because you went to a different course. You can't lose out on a partner that you never got married to or got together with because um, you could have never met them because you met a certain group of people anyway. Um, that said, I think to avoid the tautology, you could always just argue that it's not as if you were just handed down this life um, as a given or piecemeal. Certainly, most people struggle to attain the point that which that they are anyway, and they might think that, okay, this is enough. Like if you're a college, like if you have a job that required you to go to college, maybe take out a loan, maybe go through a few years of corporate like slavery uh, to attain, then it's not, um, then obviously Gov is not, can't be accused of saying, oh, that's, that's all they had because they were privileged. No, they had to work for it. Uh, similarly, if they, are, if they come from a very humble village or humble lifestyle, and they are doing all that they can anyway with their meager resources to keep that family alive, to keep the community happy, then that struggle is also justification to say, yeah, like I have exerted myself. I have applied myself. I'm not some dollar that thinks, oh, this is all their life is. No, I took stock of the things I have and I do not have. I made the best of them. I balanced my responsibilities. I made people happy. And I'm not sure if it's worth anything more to try getting even more responsibilities or seeking out more pleasures when I know that this is the set of goods I've already done. And I think that avoids the tautology because you're not just saying, oh, it's good to be humble because you're content. It's, I think the analysis then becomes, it's good to be content because you've worked enough anyway, you've applied all there is, and you're making the active choice to say, I don't need any more struggle. I don't need any more pleasures. What I have worked for is enough. So I hope that answered that question. So I guess I want to ask about what Op can argue now. So I agree with you that Op doesn't need to defend like being in poverty and having to really struggle at its worst, right? But yeah. I think it's also a worst case scenario that they'll have to defend at a lot of instances, especially if government side pushes for it. So how would you justify struggling for more and constantly struggling for more? Right, so I think Op has the more philosophical slant or philosophical slant um, that most people expect from these type of motions. I think for opposition, your main principle really is that your human agency or humanity really is just best ex exercised in choosing to struggle. 
like I not entire like op will just have to outright argue that the human experience isn't just the sum total of the joys and fears you face to get what you have today or the pleasures and pains you experience with your lot in life. If that's all you are, your set of emotions, the set of activities you already have, then you're just passive recipients of sensations and emotions. But I think op argues then that it's our ability to choose to change things to act, to manipulate reality and bend it to our will that distinguishes our lives in the universe and that's where the struggle comes in the struggle isn't good because oh it's just struggling but that struggle is important because we recognize our agency that yes we can change things we can take stock of our emotions and our, our material positions and we can say to them that i'm not satisfied and i want to do more um contentment is different because you're saying that Yeah, this is enough. I'm okay with this set of amount of experiences and emotions. So if you're going to stop with that, if you're going to be content, what distinguishes your human life from just the sum total of those experiences and emotions? Like if you're just going to sit on the couch all day doing Netflix and whatever, then what distinguishes you from any other per any other animal that just goes to the watering hole every day or does the same thing every day? You're just seeking out emotion, you're just seeking out sensation. when humanity isn't about that humanity is about choosing to do more than what their emotions and logic dictate so yeah i think that's how op should justify the struggle more i think it's interesting that you're talking about like what it means to be a human what it means to grow as a human because our second motion is about humanity's growth and how prioritizing scientific <laughs> knowledge to the exclusion of traditional knowledge impedes that growth And I think in this motion, the the info slide distinguishes scientific knowledge from traditional knowledge by looking at the means by which we acquire that knowledge. So my first and major philosophical question isn't um, isn't traditional knowledge kind of using the scientific method to like it's not wholly superstitious, right? Um, even philosophers of science like Karl Popper have said that even if we take a look at traditional knowledge like astrology or like Chinese medicine, there are actually statistically significant empirical evidence in support of um, traditional knowledge. So what exactly is the scientific method that, what is it really about the scientific method that completely separates it from the traditional way of attaining or like collecting knowledge? So I think we must understand the scientific method as a rather modern invention. You are right to opine that there are similarities between traditional knowledge and scientific knowledge. Um, that arises from the general human experience of using different forms of rationality and exper- empirical experience, i.e., you know, using our heads and our senses to make sense of the world around us, to order the things that we experience. But whereas traditional knowledge is still steeped in various cultural or religious beliefs to augment gaps in our understanding, scientific knowledge and understanding perceives those gaps as verifiable or non-verifiable with further empirical experimentation. So for example, you know, you have many early civilizations that used the stars for important things like um, farming calendars and navigational charts. They, they I certainly identified patterns in the movements of the stars, sun, and moon, and managed to correlate them with physical phenomenon they could manipulate here on Earth. When do we need to plant our seeds for a good harvest? What direction should we point our boat in so that we don't stay stuck in the ocean? What arrangements should our temple be so that it's pretty lit on like the summer solstice when the sun makes a nice laser beam or some some stuff like that? But certainly there were still like gaps in that knowledge, right? They had no idea that the Earth was not the center of the solar system. So we have concepts of so it's actually a good thing that you brought up horoscopes, right? So we have concepts of planetary retrograde, e.g., Mercury's in retrograde. because we had no way of determining with the technology back then that there were different planets that orbited around something that wasn't the Earth. It was reasonable enough for early civilizations to assume, since all we had were our eyes, that Mercury appeared to double back in the sky for various reasons, i.e. the retrograde. They are literally going backwards. When we, Now we know that's simply an optical illusion because our telescopes have, and scientific instruments have confirmed that Mercury orbits the sun faster than the Earth and so would positionally appear very different to us at states in time. And that's where scientific knowledge and the scientific method comes in. It replaces these different astrologies and mythologies and cultural explanations for why things move around us, why certain physical phenomena happen, 
from our limited sensory experiences. And then it comes in and uses our latest technologies to further ground phenomenon experience material events. No longer is this, uh, um, the stars about gods and deities moving around the planets, but now it's ab about orbits and gravity. There's still an overlap in the knowledge. We can use the movement of the stars to still plan out the calendar or to make a navigation, but now it's not based on different mythologies to explain the things we don't know. It's now based on scientific knowledge and the belief that we can explain these things with, if we just had the right physical tools and experiences, that we don't need to rely on God. We don't need to rely on a demon to tell us that, yeah, this is how things work. So I hope that's, uh, that difference is clear. So how would you prioritize then like scientific knowledge and how exactly does it exclude traditional knowledge given that you know i think based on your explanation they seem to um, mingle quite a bit right so this is where we delve into the inspiration for the motion right so um emmanuel kant once said that we do not live in an enlightened age but we do live in an age of enlightenment and so i think it's no small irony that while europe was living enjoying an age of enlightenment from the 1600s to 1800s, the rest of its colonies were experiencing things a bit far from enlightenment. You know, the whole slavery, forced labor, and extraction of all our resources, and of course, the non-application of rights between Europeans and non-Europeans. So at least from my perspective, this debate starts taking stock um, from the colonial era, or at least that's when scientific knowledge starts getting prioritized, quote-unquote, over traditional knowledge. Europeans and other colonizers literally demolished native populations' ways of life and their beliefs. And consistently, you'll find them making distinctions between the enlightened Europeans and their colonized subjects, from the so-called savage Africans in their different countries to the little brown brothers of Filipinos under the Americans. But surely, as we just discussed, all civilizations have knowledge of their own, and all of them achieved varying amounts of success and development with what they had or didn't have. The Incan Empire, for example, ran the length of almost the entire South American continent without ever inventing the wheel. Uh, various Southeast Asian civilizations, like the Khmer, invented sophisticated aqueduct and waterway systems for agricultural and religious purposes. But when you have European colonizers going there, you're calling them, they call them savages. They call them backwards because they believe in false gods, because they do not know the, the, the ways of the world. And a lot of those attitudes, um, spilled over into other forms of scientific knowledge or the earlier or the next developments. Take, for example, the field of eugenics. Um, this major assumption that Europeans were enlightened and um, their native subjects were, were savages or whatever, right? They wanted a quote unquote, a supposed scientific explanation. So that's where you had the field of phrenology where they did, you know, well, we'll call them scientific experiments insofar as they took uh, physical and experimental measurements of skulls of different people from Europeans and Africans. And then they came to the so-called scientific conclusion that, ah, because African skulls are smaller than Europeans, that explains why Europeans were able to colonize them and we didn't. Um, in the early 1900s, you had different forms of sanitation in different colonies or in the Americas because they believed that uh, native populations were not as clean and not as meticulous as Europeans or their cousins, when in reality, it was quite the opposite, when um, a lot of native populations had developed sanitation infrastructure, like the Khmer I mentioned, uh, like South America or whatever, um, that were far more advanced than what the Europeans had at their time. So why is it that the scientific experiments and the scientific perspectives of Europeans came to dominate and exclude a lot of the cultural knowledge and traditional knowledge that their colonized had? And even after decolonization, we have a lot of we still have a lot of um, exclusion. Why is it that we are so uh, we are so nonchalant about trying to quote unquote educate or uplift the masses of indigenous populations or native populations by saying all your superstitions are wrong, all your medicines are wrong? You have to turn to science. When in reality, all these are all of these things have at least allowed them to survive some way of life over the other, even up to now, even without those scientific advancements. What I'm really saying here is that a lot of the prioritizing of scientific knowledge here came with the idea that there was going to, there was a small elite or at least a leader elite um, in a lot of societies that said, this is the way to learn about things. This is the way that knowledge is generated. It is not through these myths or these other experiences that you have. Therefore, you are wrong. 
And it just so happens that a lot of these traditional knowledges came from people who were colored, came from people who were colonized, and a lot of these attitudes continue up to date. Why do we make a distinction between traditional and scientific medicine? Why do we make a distinction between um, meteorology and the science of the times between weathers? It's because we thought that learning about the world in one way was more important than learning about the world in the other way. And that has led to a whole sort of racist and sexist and really just awful things in general. So yeah, I think that's where the exclusion comes from. Like for example, like the British Academy of Royal Scientists or whatever it is called, didn't start including women until very like late in the 1800s. So clearly the scientific, uh, the scientific approach thought that, I don't know, maybe women um, didn't have the same sense apparatuses or logic as men, but that's clearly not scientific now. But at the time they thought that was science. They thought that was the correct way. And so clearly this is a questioning of a lot of assumptions of how we think people can learn and people can experiment with the world around them. So I hope that answers the question. So I, I think it's clear now what the strategy here for government would be. My question would be, I think, a trickier and much more diverse opposition here because they have like two strategies to choose from. They can either try to uphold a sort of balance between two or they could like just strive for one and say that they have to compensate from years of oppression and now they have to prioritize traditional knowledge. If you were in opposition, which of these two like strategies would you take? So personally, I would explore going hard and saying that, uh, sad to say, the traditional knowledge and the way we generate traditional knowledge has run its course and that scientific knowledge is, a w- is the way to go. Um, I think this is where you discuss that, well, how is this traditional knowledge generated anyway? And while you can respect um, that you know, native populations and cultural beliefs did allow them to make good empirical observations to some extent, um, a lot of times these are really still harmful superstitions. Um, take for example, how, what's a good example here? Uh, take for example, uh, a lot of religious beliefs on sanitation and women's menstrual cycles. You'll find that at least for okay, Judaism or Christianity for some, uh, for some reason, uh, we would consider women's menses as a state of uncleanliness, whatever that meant. And you had to go through all these sorts of ritualistic um, uh, practices just to quote-unquote cleanse these people who wanted to associate with women um, and that clearly bleeds into a lot of our other uh, other experiences with who is and is not deserving of respect in the society um, a lot of things like gender roles a lot of things like how we share um, experiences and advancements in societies um, are based on who we think is capable of generating that knowledge and I think it's worth arguing that sometimes the way that we generate traditional knowledge will still be exclusionary anyway. It's not just this whole um, pre-colonial paradise where we thought everyone was equal. No, they all civilizations had their biases and we carry over those biases into our religious beliefs, into our old cultural or native beliefs. And that's just really a bad way to go if you want to include everyone. Where science is just literally, if you can prove it, if you can do the experiment if you have the logic to apply to it. It doesn't matter what your stature or case in society is. It is either provable or unprovable, and there is no moral worth tied to it. Um, so yeah, things like sanitation, they're obviously cultural beliefs. We thought that lepers um, were infected. We thought that lepers were unclean members of society. It was a correct observation to say it was um, infectious and dangerous, but it is because of the systems of traditional knowledge that we said that they are morally not worth interacting with society. When it was scientific knowledge that allowed us to discover the um, ways to treat leprosy, and we were able to um, detach a lot of the moral attitudes we had towards leprosy and a lot of other diseases. So clearly, if you're going to go hard line, it allows you to say that traditional knowledge for all it's worth did moralize and did stigmatize different members of society based on what they thought was good knowledge and bad knowledge. Scientific knowledge has no such forms. It is just about being able to make the best material conditions. Um, I wasn't really able to think about the more, I wouldn't say soft, uh, the other positions about balancing these two sources or maybe um, prioritizing traditional knowledge. But if you are going to make references to other motions, for example, um, Christian's motions about uh, the different information models we have with communication. Um, that's certainly a way to further integrate that, integrate traditional and scientific knowledge anyway, um, like balancing them out. It's being able to add uh, verifiable, ver- verifiable material phenomenon 
with how they how people culturally believe that these diseases come to work. Um, I haven't really explored on them because I really do prefer hardline. It's just cleaner. It's just safer. Uh, it makes for a more dichotomous debates. So I think it's easier for judges to really deal with. How would upper How would one characterize the growth of humanity, especially for golf? Because I think from the discussion earlier, it's all about like how objective can this kind of knowledge be. And if you're on Gov, we can get the sense that scientific knowledge isn't exactly objective. Like we can use a scientific method to justify very subjective notions about race, for example. So I think like if neither are objective, how can having both um, forms of knowledge or not prioritizing one over the other help humanity develop? How can government side argue that? So honestly, if it's a question of what is the growth of humanity in the motion, I think it's anyone's game, really. I I I don't want to delve too much into it because I think this is uh, something that is reliant on your creativity and their appetite for what you think has to be improved. Is it just simply a question of improving material conditions and advancing us technologically as a society? Is it a question of preserving and advancing our different ways of life to um, being cosmopolitan, being a cosmopolitan species. Honestly, it's anyone's take. I think there are just different nuances that you can or cannot choose to do anyway, be it religious, cultural, gender, economic. I think um, it's really your it's really your pick. I have no particular subscriptions. I just think that the common thread should be that um, we we live in a society uh, and we all have different ways of interacting with the world and generating knowledge with that world it is a question then of how much we should be sharing that knowledge with each other how much should we be including each other um, in that quest for knowledge and are there just certain beliefs or certain perspectives that as we grow and mature as a species we just simply have to abandon or relegate for more advanced things i think that's the only common thread you need to go for for me uh, i think it's really just worth your exploration Um, with what you think is worth discussing in the motion. So just trust your instincts as debaters, I guess. Uh, the last motion we have, the last question we have for this motion would be related to opposition because you mentioned right. earlier some points on how traditional knowledge can also be biased to some extent. And that was like one of the main thrusts for opposition bench. I wanted to ask if you had other angles you could explore because it seems tricky to go against traditional knowledge per se, without sounding accidentally racist or without sounding like you're prioritizing one culture over the other. So how would you deal with um, the points on traditional knowledge without basically committing an equity violence? Oh, that's always, um, that's always tough. Yeah, admittedly. Um, but I would say that the ways that, again, the ways we organize traditional knowledge are also very reliant on social Uh, political and cultural factors, how we literally organize a society. So for example, um, different case systems across the world, I won't name any countries or cultures, but surely those case systems were developed um, to say that there's a certain elite at the top and then there's everyone else. And then we have untouchables or unworthies or slaves or whatever. And that is arguably a product of traditional knowledge because we said that, okay, if there is a reality that humans can access, then It just so happens that some humans are better able to understand the world better or interact with the world better. Maybe because it was through God, maybe because it was the religious belief, maybe because some humans were built that way. Um, I don't know, but that all depends on their traditional knowledge. And because of that conclusion that, okay, some humans might be better at interacting with God or nature or whatever, maybe it just makes sense for us as a society to organize ourselves into different castes or classes to better show who is important and make the world work. So maybe at the time when, you know, civilization and humanity was still developing, that might have been necessary to some degree, but clearly as scientific knowledge is advancing and we are better able to manipulate our realities, then a lot of these justifications for cultural and political caste and classes start going out the window. Like, why are we still saying some people are untouchables? Why are we still saying that, uh, some genders or some sexes cannot take on certain political roles. What is the scientific knowledge on that? There is none, but there is a traditional knowledge for that, saying that it's part of a religious belief. It is part of our cultural um, identity and our knowledge. And this is how we understood the world, the way things work. And we want to honor our ancestors and our way of life. So it's not to disparage them. They clearly had the reasons for it. They use the best of their senses of their logic. But if you want to advance better as humanity, 
then we have to realize when some things are just outdated. It's just how the world works. All right, great. So speaking of potentially outdated pieces of knowledge or concepts, we can now move on to the last thought, which is um, this house believes that nationalism is no longer viable in advancing modern day democracies. My first question is, how would we define nationalism here? Like, for example, um, can it be reasonably defined as this um, abstract belief in the nation state, but the basis for that belief can be whatever you want it to be, like what opening government did in the La Salle worlds, where like it is it was characterized to be the most inclusive um way of organizing like a group because it can be anything you want. America can be anything you want it to be. Okay, so just to clarify where this motion is coming from, this is technically cheating, admittedly, because this is more political philosophy. So you would think, oh, why doesn't this say a, a, a general society's motion or, or a political a politics motion? And the answer to that is because a lot of philosophy, or at least um, Western philosophy as we know it, did also intertwine a lot of their metaphysics with political philosophy. So I'm sure, for example, I've heard you've heard of Plato's um, Allegory of the Cave that oh we're not living we're just living in the shadow of a real world and only the enlightened people can really understand um, that there is a true world of forms and only smart philosophers can do that. I don't think it was coincident that Plato also advocated for the tyranny of the philosopher king who was smarter than everyone else to lead the society. Conversely, Aristotle, his counterpart, said that you know we can form knowledge and we can learn looking at physical characteristics and making knowledge about this. And again, it, I don't think it is coincidence that Aristotle also um, advocated for, demo- for a form of democracy, of letting common citizens, well, at the time, uh, landed male citizens, make the decisions in an assembly rather than the philosopher king. So as with the second motion, a lot of what we think is, a lot of our questions about the state of nature, about the way we should live a life, the way we can interact with reality, do have very real and tangible effects. If we think certain people are better than others, if we think that life should be a certain way, then that naturally leads to the question, okay, so what is the best form of society to engender those things? That's why I think this is a perfectly relevant motion for a philosophy round. Political philosophy is literally just, probably, I don't know, because I'm not the policy major, right? Um, but political philosophy, in my view, is just a way of philosophizing about the different systems we want to organize around based on our experiences as humans. So anyway, so back to the question, how would we define nationalism? Very broadly speaking, um, technically, yes, you could just say that nationalism could be in any way that you want it to. I don't think it's particular for any one side. Um, It could be the nationalism that is based on like very strong and quote-unquote, definable boundaries of race or religious origins um, because that would engender the different harms that I was imagining on Gov. Like, you know, there's a lot of um, nationalism that is very becoming very isolationist or very exclusionary. We can look at Trump's America or Moody's India or the resurgence of far-right nationalism in Europe. It could be uh, different forms of nationalism that are more cosmopolitan in nature, you know, opposition or oppositions or whatever to all these regimes that I developed. Um, I think the point here is it is going to be a question of what you think the dominant forms of nationalism are or what you think the essence, quote unquote, of nationalism is going to be. Like, do you think that nationalism at its core is something that is fundamentally important to political development or the development of democracy in general? Or are there just limits to what you think nationalism can and can do such that we can jettison them if we think it's no longer serving democracy. So I hope that answers the question. But generally speaking, there is no particular way to define it, define what nationalism is or is not for Gover Op. I just think that you have to recognize, you have to confront the question on either side, whether there can be limits to nationalism and whether those limits are compatible with forwarding democracy around the world. I would even make a fearless forecast that this was probably one of the issues in the round. Like, what is nationalism was probably a point that a lot of debaters spent a lot of time on, knowing how Filipinos debate at the very least. But the next question I had would be about modern day democracies and how we define that, because this is also a very context heavy motion. So what do you mean by modern day democracies? Are we talking about democracies today or do we mean modern democracies as in, I don't know, Western liberal democracies that we haven't reached the level of yet? 
So like one problem I had with this motion, it's a problem I wasn't, I don't think I was able to satisfactorily solve is how do we um, make the motion such that we can address all these different kinds of democracy. So I don't think it's a particular democracy. I think the only particularity is that what is democracy today? So it could be Western liberal democracies. I think it's bad if you limit it to only them. I would obviously want a discussion on a lot of developing world democracies. Um, but I also think this, the, the motion is not just about strict democracies, i.e. the democratic structures that we have, but also the democratic pro project writ large. Like, what does it mean to want to participate in a democracy? What does it mean to inspire people to live in a democracy, to aspire for democracy? So all these different things, states, um, political processes, individual aspirations, I think that's all part of the democracies I want to talk about. So you could just be, so it's perfectly, perfectly reasonable, I think, for any debater to just stick with the more uh, structural uh, questions about this, like, oh, are we eroding or advancing democratic states? Uh, I think the debate could be definitely much richer if you also talk about what does it mean for people to yearn for a democracy? How do people participate in a democracy? How do people construct democracies in their cultures? And is nationalism something that will allow them that kind of self-determination to begin with uh, at this point in time, of course? Yeah, so I, I think it's good that you mentioned that it's at this point in time because there's also a time dimension to this motion. So would it be like the most ideal for government to argue that it used to be viable, but it's no longer viable? Because my fear with that kind of strategy could be that it could be perceived as soft line and not as hard as just going against nationalism as a whole. So how would you deal with that? So I, so I made this motion with the weak assumption that for the, for a time being, like, I, I, the main inspiration being like, you know, uh, post the, the decolonization process is that uh, nationalism was pretty important or at least instrumental in helping uh, different newly found states or different countries determine the kinds of political structures and countries that they wanted to have. So I think it's viable insofar as, yes, um, it allowed us to have democratic structures because based, coming from the alternative of colonial structures, um, case-driven structures, etc. So this is not a value. This is not a valid judgment of saying, "Oh, it was the most effective thing, or it's the least effective thing." It's only setting the motion insofar as this is a motion in comparison to how we used nationalism before. Maybe it was still good. Maybe it was better. Maybe it still sucked a lot hard. But at some point in time, it was definitely instrumental to founding democracy as we know it. Now the the time element now being that, you know, we're seeing democracy as it is. It's under attack by so many right-wing authoritarian populists. We're seeing a general disillusionment with uh, democracy because of things like the excesses of capitalism or excesses of globalization, whatever you might want to call it. So the question there being is um, if we want to advance democracy further, whether as a political structure or as a deliberative process, is nationalism something that will still allow us to better develop this idea or has it reached the limit of our time given all these technological advancements, given the extent of globalization, given the sheer discontentment we've seen with how democracy tries to mesh nationalism with all these different policies. So that's like the mean time element I have. It's really just, there was this point in time where it was useful. How useful it was even then is also up for debate. The question now is, at this point in time, if we want democracy to survive, I would say, um, can we still afford nationalism to be used? So, yeah. Okay, so given that that's how the debate should be, I guess the best way to wrap this up would be to ask you, how would you recommend teams both on Gov and on Up to argue on this motion? So off the top of my head, I would argue that, I, I think the Gov approach really is that um, we're seeing a lot of, yeah, what I, I mentioned earlier, there's the surge of right-wing authoritarian populists who are hijacking or, you know, twisting nationalism. Again, it does depend on what you define nationalism is. I'll, I'll let the debaters do that themselves. Um, but yeah, they're using nationalism to tear apart a lot of democratic structures. Trump's Make America Great Again is obviously a form of nationalism that appeals to whites primarily and the end of small but not insignificant set of, of people of color who believe in that form of nationalism to the exclusion of the responsibilities of the world. You have forms of nationalism in far-right Europe where they are, you know, getting uppity against my immigrants again. 
you have you know, Duterte's nationalism, which is you know a nation united against drugs, and anyone who uses drugs or is accused of using drugs rather is someone that is not part of the nation and de- therefore deserves to be shot in a bloody death. Um, those are all different forms of nationalism, all tearing apart our democracies because these are people who um, don't want to be accountable to regular democratic structures. They don't believe in the will of an opposition that is arguably part of democracy. So given those effects, Gov's question really is, is democracy really going to be viable knowing that there have all been these awful leaders and awful trends um, that allowed them to use nationalism to tear apart democratic structures and accountability to exclude all these minorities or all their opposition. So that's for Gov, right? For op in general, again, it also depends on what your nationalism is. Um, off the top of my head, I would say that uh, opposition relies on a bit more cosmopolitan definition of nationalism that, yeah, nationalism can be anything you want it to be. It could be just this all-encompassing, yes, we are together as one nation because of some tautology, whatever. Therefore, that is the best way to continue democracy, even if people feel disillusioned from it, whether as your opposition who feels that Duterte or Trump is going to win, or if you are a majority supporter who who feels that your country is being torn apart because of all these partisan politics. So that's one way nationalism can still bring democracy together. Um, It could also be an appeal to nationalism as based on the national or mythic cult that, you know, we were born as a nation through struggle, through hardship, blah, blah, blah. That is the kind of nationalism we have. It is a nationalism and struggle based in democracy. Therefore, we have to continue appealing to that to reinvigorate people who still believe in democracy, to continue fighting back as opposition, to make them believe that this trend of authoritarianism and right-wing populism can pass and that we can restore democratic structures. So those are just broadly off the top of my head. I'm sure people can think of far more um, creative ways to really discuss what I think is a very broad topic anyway. So I think that wraps up our discussion of the three motions you sent in. So thank you so much, Ventura, for all of those motions. But before we end this episode, we have one final question. It would be, what advice would you give novices who are just starting out their debate journeys? Like, don't tell them not to because it's too late. They're already here. <laughs> so what other advice would you give? Um, Like I said at the start, you really just want to stay curious. Like, I think the moment you think that you've figured out this motion or you've figured out the set of arguments. And I think that's when you really start stagnating. I admit that there is definitely a time where you think, oh, this is just another um, different kind of motion. I know what the arguments are. And that's perfectly fine because you know, you, you're allowed to revel in your own experiences. But I think if you really want to go far, or if you at least want to enjoy, then I think it's really a good practice to approach any motion or any round with a fresh set of eyes and open curiosity to thinking, oh, what kind of new arguments will I do today? Uh, What kind of debates will happen? How can I continue learning from this? I think that kind of uh, refreshment over and over again keeps uh, keeps the experience from going stale, lets you be more open to the people that you can learn from, and overall, I think that leaves you a happier debater. So yeah, just keep on have be curious so you can have fun and be happy. Yeah. Okay, that's it for this episode of Debatable and for this post-debate analysis. Thank you so much, Venti, for agreeing to be a motion contributor and for agreeing to do this interview with us. We'll see everyone in the next episode. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.